Well, good morning, church. Good to be together with you on this brisk but beautiful fall day. If you're a guest here today, my name's Mark. Really glad to have you join us today. So we just had a wonderful trip to Haiti. Left early Monday morning. There were a couple of us pastors, John and David, and a couple of lay men as well. Bob and Mark who joined us. And we got to connect with someone that we've been partnering with. We've sent a couple teams of students. We've had a couple of groups of leaders just interacting with them. Mission of Hope has been there on the island of Haiti for a long time, and they've got just great relationships across the, the island there, and they've been doing a lot of good in the name of Christ. And their goal is to see that island, every man, woman, and child, transformed by the power of the gospel as that's just lived out and shared holistically to meet the needs of everyone who lives there. And so we ran into the their educational ministries and saw their schools and their orphanages and saw their senior living home, the Grace Home. We saw this unbelievable training center where they're training local pastors. We saw the work they're doing in these adopted communities and the homes that they're building. And it was all very, very encouraging. In fact, as they seek to bring the transformation of the gospel to Haiti, they, they literally serve 91,000 meals each day. That's 91,000 kids and students fed each day through Mission of Hope. We're part of that. 9,000 students in their schools. They've built almost 900 homes since the earthquake in 2010. And just last year, through just their wonderful reach of living and sharing the good news, they've seen over 1,700 people place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so it was our privilege to go as a team. I'll show you a couple pictures. The first one is Pastor David Smith in one of those communities interacting with some of the young men, which was great to see. Uh, another was just going to a school. They had a school right on the main campus where we were, 900 kids, kindergarten through the end of high school. And then um, we saw a lots, of, lots of other things, just wonderful, wonderful experience. And then we had just one of those kind of experiences and adventures that you have when you travel abroad to far-off places and places like Haiti. And so um, we were to get up on Thursday morning at 6 o'clock, and um, our, our host, Janiel, said, hey, there's a little switch of plan, and we're taking the van this morning. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you, but to David and I, when he said the van, we went, uh-oh, not the van. Like, not the van we traveled on last night that barely made it back. Not that van. Yeah, it was that van. So we traveled down the bumpy road, and we turned left on the highway, and we hadn't gone very far where all of a sudden the van dies. Now, you need to know that the day before we found out there's a little problem with the ignition. They had to rewire it, so there literally was a light switch that you turn on, and you press the defrost button to crank the motor. <laughs> you should know. There could be problems. So here we are. We're cruising down the highway, and all of a sudden the van <laughs> loses power, and, and he's cranking it over, trying to get it started again. And after a little bit, it, it, it starts. And then it happens again, and it happens every time we start slowing down and braking. So then he figured out, the driver, maybe if I just go slower, this will work. But then you're going through cities and intersections. And this is like, this is like new kind of driving. You've got two lanes. You'd think it'd be simple. One lane's going this way, and the other lane's going that way. Oh, no. Two lanes turns into four, and it's a free-for-all and a, a national game of chicken. And anyway, so <laughs> we're doing this. And the car keeps dying, it keeps dying. Finally, we're, we're over to the side. Oh, this, I forgot to tell the other services, so this is great. You guys get this one. We're in this huge roundabout in Port-au-Prince, and it dies. I, I don't think we were there 30 seconds 
when all of a sudden a policeman comes up and he starts writing a ticket. And so we get a ticket and the guys are saying, look, we're not parking. It's just dead right now. So we made it. It started again. We've been calling back to headquarters to send another vehicle. I mean, we're going, oh, my word, it's kind of tight to get to the flight. We may not make it today. Well, we finally, after about eight of these, eight of these, wondering if it's ever going to start again, all of a sudden he yanks the car to the right and we pull into a gas station. I'm going, oh, great, good. Maybe there's a mechanic that can fix this thing quickly. And the next thing we know, the guy says, get out and walk. It's not that far. Just walk to the airport, which we did, and it's all good. We made it home. <laughs> so, um, hey, thanks for being part of places like Haiti and places like Rwanda and places like Liberia and ministries like um, what's going on in Urban Impact in New Orleans and Red Cloud School in South Dakota Thanks for being part of adopting teachers and schools and being big brothers and sisters. Thanks for the ways you're connecting formally with ministries here and all the other things that you're doing as you're supporting people that you know in your family, your friends, who are taking the gospel out to the ends of the world. And we're excited to see more of us engage with Christ's mission here, near, and far, and be looking for some cool trips coming up to places like Haiti in the next 12 months here. So speaking about Haiti and the gospel moving out, it's good for us to kind of transition to the book of Acts where we're catching up with the spirit-filled followers of Jesus. This is a new thing, right? Everybody didn't get the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Certain people for certain occasions, right? But now the Spirit comes on all the followers of Christ and they're moving from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. So the book starts in Jerusalem and it goes to the ends of the earth, and it ends in Rome. So grab your Bible and uh, turn to chapter 9. And as you're turning to chapter 9, let me just get you into that theme verse of the book of Acts, all right? So you're turning to 9, but let me just put on the screen Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, what does it say, in Jerusalem. That's chapters 1 through 7 of Acts. So this is like the outline of the book of Acts. And in all Judea and Samaria, that's chapters 8 through 12. We were in 8 last week. Remember the ministry in Samaria, Simon the magician. And to the ends of the earth. That is chapter 13 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 28. So we're in chapter 9 today. The focus is going to move from a guy named Peter, who's this early leader, this disciple of Jesus, who's this early leader in the church at the beginning, to a focus more, not exclusively, but, but much more focused on Paul and his ministry, this first great missionary for Jesus Christ, this ambassador. So when we meet Saul, he's public enemy number one of the church of Jesus Christ, of Christians. Public enemy number one. That's what we're going to see here today. And then he becomes ambassador number one for Jesus Christ. And we're going to try and catch up with how does that happen? How does a murderer become a missionary? How does someone who's persecuting the church suffer persecution and be willing to do that at the cost and risk of his own life. 
How does that change happen? So that's where we're going, all right? So we begin in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, against Jesus' followers. He went to the high priest. This is the ruler of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. In other words, he asked him for letters that would give him authority to do what he's about to say. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that was the title that was given to the early Christians, the way, the people of the way. Maybe given because Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? So, to, so if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether man, men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. That's what he's on about. Look back at chapter 8 and just notice what we learned about Saul at the beginning of chapter 8. And Saul approved of their killing him, being Stephen, who just was martyred. We read about that in chapter 7, verse 3. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. We meet this guy named Saul. He's a persecutor. He's a murderer. He's kind of like this wild man. In fact, the language that Luke uses is the language of like of a wild beast pursuing its prey to tear it apart. That's Saul. Well, let me give you Saul's take on Saul at that time in his life. In Acts 22, before the crowd in Jerusalem when he's just been arrested, he said this, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. This is 22.4. Arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. He's acknowledging his violence, his brutality, even his killing, right? In verse 19, same chapter, 22. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. You get the picture? And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, that's the story in chapter 7, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So they took out their outer garments, picking up clothes, uh, picking up stones, and they threw all their outer robes at his feet, who was going, yep, that's exactly what he deserves. That's exactly right. He said, I was there before King Agrippa as he's under trial. He says this in chapter 26, verse 10. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. That's Saul. Public enemy number one. Hated anything and everything that had to do with Jesus. Saul. But Saul becomes Paul. And Saul is a very different man. We'll just pick it up in the text. Go to chapter 9, verse 19, the second half of the verse. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. I can still see the flannel graph as a kid. It was so cool. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. 
like he's going undercover, right? But Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, great name, great man, took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord, speaking of Jesus now, the Lord, had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. These are the people that killed Stephen, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. That was his home city. Then we read, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, that's up in the north, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Remember, they were being persecuted starting in chapter 8. Now they're enjoying a peace, uh, a time of peace, and the church is being strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord, and encouraged by the Holy, uh, and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. So this murderous, violent man who's on a mission to extinguish the church of Jesus Christ is now this guy whose life is completely changed. So get this. There's 27 books in the New Testament. Paul authored 13 of those. Four of them he wrote from prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, all written when he was in chains. Scholars says, say he traveled some 10 to 15,000 miles. Over 10 of that on foot. Going to 50 cities, most of them very strategic in the world at that time. To share the good news, he'd always start in the synagogue where these little Jewish enclaves were talking to them trying to persuade them into believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He is the promised Savior that the Scriptures have been pointing to. Jesus is the Messiah. And just about in every place He went, there were a few Jews who believed, but most of them who rejected Him, kicked Him out, and He continued to spread the good news to people who were not of Jewish blood, the Gentiles. So there's some maps to kind of give you a sense of his travels. I'll just do the first two journeys. So the journeys start out in this place called Antioch. Oh, here we go, laser. Okay, see Antioch? So, not Antioch, Illinois. This is Antioch uh, right, right here in the Middle East. So Antioch is actually the first place where followers of Jesus were called Christians. Literally, little Christs. Right there. He's there for a year in a very multi-ethnic. Talk about we want to be a church for all people. Antioch was a church for all people. Made up of all these diverse people and people groups. And he's a teacher in the church for a year. They have this prayer meeting where they're seeking the Lord for direction and what to do next. They've got a passion to see more people come to faith in Jesus Christ and get the good news out. And so... It was clear to the gathering through the Spirit that they were supposed to send Paul and Barnabas out to the far reaches to tell more people about Jesus. And so Paul and Barnabas and Barnabas's cousin, John Mark, launched off from Antioch. And we see their travels right up in here into um, modern-day Turkey. Now, you can't see it, but this right here is Lystra. 
to give you a sense of the change of this man. So remember what he's, what he's doing. He's arresting, right? He's dragging people off to prison. He's approving their deaths. He's, he's responsible for many people's deaths. In Lystra, he's telling in the synagogue about Jesus Christ, and there were some other Jewish leaders that didn't like what he was talking about, that had chased him down into Lystra and convinced the people in the Jewish community that this guy needs to be stopped and destroyed. And they literally dragged him outside of town, and they stoned him. And they left him, the text says, for dead. Believing he was dead, they stopped stacking the rocks, and they walked back into town. We can only imagine there's Barnabas, and there's John Mark, and maybe some new converts that are weeping that their friend had just been brutally murdered. And then all of a sudden, something moved under the pile. And up crawls Paul. And this is wild. And the text says, and he went back into the city, like Lystra, where the guys just stoned him. This, this guy's just unbelievable, courageous man. There's a second journey. And you can see how now he's moving through Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, up and over the Aegean, down into modern-day Greece. Those of us that are going to have a privilege to go to, to uh, Israel and Greece, we're going to see some of those very places where, where Paul preached the gospel. So he has a third missionary journey. And one of those journeys, he's uh, preaching the gospel, he's setting up churches, and he hears about the famine back in Jerusalem. And so he's getting these new believers who aren't Jewish to give, to give relief to the people back in Jerusalem. And he's collecting offerings, and we read about that in Corinthians. And his pattern was to preach the gospel in the synagogue when it's rejected, to start preaching it out wherever he could with whomever would listen and establishing these churches, appointing leaders. Sometimes he stays for a year. Sometimes he stays for longer than a year like in Corinth. And he's, and he's preaching the gospel and establishing these churches. And when he comes back to Jerusalem after the third journey, he's arrested in Jerusalem. And he's going through all these different trials. And finally, he appeals to Caesar because he actually was a Roman citizen from the city of Tarsus. And they go, well, he's a Roman citizen, and we got to grant him his request. And so his final journey is the ship journey and then the last bit on foot to Rome where we see him at the very end of the book under house arrest and fearlessly and boldly preaching the good news of the kingdom. That's Paul. And if Paul were here today and he heard me tell the story about the van breaking down on the way to Port-au-Prince, he would have said, brother, sit down. Don't be silly. That's not hard. That's not hard. Let me tell you what hard is. In fact, when we catch up with this section of Scripture, it almost sounds like he's bragging. You don't have the context, but the context in the Corinthian churches, they've got these different leaders. People are, they're kind of galvanized around different leaders, and some of these leaders are casting dispersions on Paul and saying he's not credible, he's not a real apostle, apostle. and he's basing his, his authenticity, his apostle of Jesus, not in his eloquence, not in anything, but in his sufferings. And he even, like, right before this section, he says, this is kind of crazy that I'm even talking like this, but since you guys are taking that tack, let me play your game to just kind of level the field. So we read this in 2 Corinthians 11. I've worked much harder 
been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Think about being caned. Once I was pelted with stones. That's Lystra. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I'd been constantly on the move. I'd been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. So, how does Saul become Paul? How does that happen? How, do, how does a man who is bent on destroying anyone and anything and everything that is associated with Jesus Christ end up giving his life for Christ and his mission? How can we experience fundamental change from who we were, who we are, to who we want to be, who God wants us to be? And how can we know that it's the real deal, the change? So I want us to chase down that. Is change even possible? And I want us to go to the middle section that we just skipped, starting in verse 3, to just see how the text talks about what ha- how he changed, that we might understand how we can change, to see what were the marks that we can identify as the marks of someone who's been changed by God and catch up in our own lives and experience. So verse 3, as he neared, this is now Saul going near to Damascus, right? As he neared Damascus, so this is the capital of Syria, still there today. On his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. In other words, he was knocked to his feet. He got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. He was blind. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. He's fasting and he's praying. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. So a vision would be not necessarily a dream. It could happen at night in his sleep, but it could happen in the middle of the day. And the Lord said, Ananias. And he recognized the Lord's voice. He says, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas. I said earlier on State Street, but it's actually Straight Street. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he's praying. In a vision, he'd seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered. It's almost like Ananias is going, do you remember who this guy is? He says, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest, right, the letters, to arrest all who call on your name, who trust in you, who worship you. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. And we keep running into that word, right, in Acts. Go, go. This man, listen to this, this man, Saul, 
That's all we know about Saul right now. Murderous, violent, brutal. That's all amped up in spirituality, right? This man is what? My chosen instrument. Like, wow. Really? Can you find somebody who's just like not a murderer? He's my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went. Oh, I love that. He went to the house and entered it, placing his hand on Saul. Listen to what he said. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So how does it happen? How does Saul become Paul? What does the text tell us? Does the text describe anything other than God stopped him dead in his tracks when he was hell-bent to destroy everything about Jesus and his people, right? There is no indication that there is any change of thinking, of action. He's going into Damascus. He's got the letters in his satchel, and he's going to take them out of the synagogue. He's going to clean it out. He's going to purge it of all these false teachers and people and believers. He's going to take them back to Jerusalem. He's going to have them thrown into prison, and if necessary, just wipe them out. And the text says, God meets him, and Jesus is the one who shows up. Jesus is the light. How do we know that? Because the voice is Christ. It's me that you're persecuting. Oh, like a thought he never had. What? You're alive? You're intimately connected with these people so that when I'm persecuting them, your followers, I'm persecuting you? He met Christ, and out of God's sovereign grace, he has been moving towards this man who we would say, least likely, so far in the book of Acts, least likely to be a follower of Jesus, let alone the number one ambassador for the good news of Jesus Christ. And so how does one's life be fundamentally changed? The answer in the scripture and in this story is it's the grace of God. It's not about his deciding he didn't decide. He wasn't looking for this. He wasn't desiring this. God, in his grace, found this guy on the road to Damascus as he's in a posture of destruction. God's grace. What is grace? It's a gift freely given. He didn't desire it. He didn't deserve it. What is grace? It's the wrapping up of all God's goodness. Moving towards you. That's right. Moving towards you. All of his goodness, his mercy, his love, his kindness, his wisdom, his forgiveness, his peace, his joy. Moving towards us. And Paul, reflecting on his conversion, to say that's exactly what it was. Galatians 1.15. But when God who set me apart, listen to what he says, who set me apart, meaning who chose me from my mother's womb, before he drew a breath, right? And called me how? By 
his, what's, the, what's it say? Grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. His grace was gradual. In chapter 26, verse 14, he talks about resisting the prodding of God. He talks about that, that prodding stick, the, the, the goads with the sharp nails that the shepherds would use to, to herd the cattle in the right direction. He said, I resisted it. He doesn't say how he was being moved and drawn to God, if it was a matter of a guilty conscience or doubts he had, or if when he saw Stephen stoned to death, saying, man, that just totally was messing with my categories, that this guy would die for what I think is a complete hoax. He just is telling us that it didn't start on the road to, Emmaus, uh, to Damascus. It started long before God gradually moving towards him gently. The story of Acts chapter 9 isn't that God, Jesus, jumped down on the Damascus road and he put him in a chokehold. And he said, dude, you got like three seconds to call me Lord and follow me. Because if you don't, I'm taking you out. Now, some people actually think, no, that's how God operates. No, he doesn't. He has created us as people who have free choices. He is the all-glorious, perfect God, and he delights in those and finds great joy and great glory in children that willingly respond to his beauty and grace. There's a big difference to when my kids were little and they just run to the front door when I walked in. Daddy's home. Now I get little dogs and wagon tails. <laughs> Can't wait for Henry to do that. Grandpa's home. I remember as the kids got a little older, sometimes they'd be in the living room. I walked through the front door and the little ones came and the big kids were preoccupied with other things. And Lori would say, kids, hey, dad's home. Why don't you greet him? That was a really big difference. When they were instructed, hey, you should do that. It's not that they didn't love me, but it wasn't free in that same way. He didn't put him in a full Nelson. His grace is gentle. And he will let us choose not to follow him, but he will refuse to not pursue us. And that's what he's talking about. It's the sovereign grace of God that changes us. That's how it happens. God is the first mover. We love him because, what does Scripture say? He first loved us. So then the question is, how do we know if we've been changed by the grace of God? The temptation in a story like this is, well, we know we've been changed by the grace of God because we've had our own Damascus experience. Let me tell you about it. When I was young, or I had this vision of Christ, and all those things can be true, and Paul could get up and wax eloquent about all that was miraculous on that day when the bright light enveloped him, and the voice of Christ greeted him by name, and he was knocked to his feet, and how Ananias laid his hands on him, and something like scales fell out of his eyes, and he could see. And we go, whoa, I don't think I have one of those stories. But we can go back to our story to go, here's why I know I've been changed. That's not what the Bible does. It doesn't talk about, we know we can have confidence that we've been changed by the grace of God because of what happened to us around us on that day we trusted Christ. 
It's what happens ongoing in us and continues to mark our life. And so we want to look at the marks of a person whose life has been changed by the grace of God. And we want to ask ourselves, is that true of me? Because I call myself a Christ follower. Or I go, would I want that to happen to me? Because I'm considering Christ. The first thing that we want to say is, the first mark is, there's personal faith. There's a relationship. It's not just that we know things about God, know things about Jesus, but there's this intimate relationship metered by the Spirit that is now in us. And so we have this relationship, and Paul's in a conversation with Christ, and that conversation never stops from Acts chapter 9. We read about his prayers. There's this change of focus. Paul was this man who was preoccupied with keeping the law. And basically what he argues in Philippians 3 is, I got a PhD in that. I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of, of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin, so zealous that I persecute the church. And when it comes to the law, faultless. I have never broken the law. That's how serious. And he was all into religious activity that had all to do with the externals of his life. But now, there's something else going on. There's a relationship. A mark of someone who's been changed by the grace of God is that we're pursuing a relationship, not religious activity. There's a second mark. There's a change of allegiance. He submits. He surrenders to Jesus Christ. It's not that he just recognizes him. He submits to him. He doesn't just say, you're the son of God. He says, you are my Lord. I recognize that you have full sway. I am, as an act of the will, trusting you and expressing it to you in this, that you have my life. You gave my life for me, and now you have my life. My life is yours. He's not a category in a person who's changed by the grace of God. He is the person who changes every category of my life, my work, my marriage, my fathering, my living in community, in a relationship, on campus, in the dorm, uh, wherever it is, how I think about work and how I think about money and how I think about sex, everything under Christ. For his honor, for my good and the good of the world that he loves. A change of allegiance that's marked by trust. Another way to say it is obedience. There's a third mark. And this is a surprise. We wouldn't think of it. The mark of someone whose life has been changed by the grace of God, they're in new relationships, not just with God through Christ, not just with the Father through Jesus, but because we're part of God's family, there's new relationships with his family. And we have brothers and sisters that, that, that we're connected to Christ's church, the universal church through faith, and then the local expressions of the universal church, like a door creek or the one that you may be attending as you're visiting here today. And so Paul he, he, he's, the first words he hears from Ananias is, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, you're part of the family by the grace of God. And we're not spectators in the church. We're active participants. The metaphor that the New Testament, Paul specifically, we use for the church is we're one body. We're made up of different parts. Christ is the head. He's our leader. 
And we exist for him and his mission and for each other. We're helping each other grow to be more like Christ so that together we can reach the world for Christ. And we need each other. And God has placed us not just in relationship with him, but with his church. And so I'm preaching to the choir because you're here. But man, there's a whole bunch of us. There are times in our life where we checked out of the church because hard things happened in the church. I get that. I, I remember before we came here to Door Creek, having a serious conversation after deep hurt and 20-some years in one church where I had to say to Lori, are you up to doing this again? Because if you're not, I get it. And we'll build log cabins in Door County. <laughs> People, why do we get hurt by the church? Because the church isn't fully like Jesus yet. And the parts of me that aren't Jesus are going to bump up against you. And it hurts. And we get hurt. We're not perfect. So you're visiting Door Creek? So I'm just going to say it. We're not perfect. But we serve the one who is. And at the head of the non-perfect line, hello, it's me. Right? And so... It, it's, really, it's really common in our day for people to go, well, I don't need the church. Well, wait a minute. That, that may be true to how you feel and your conclusions, but that's not true to the word of God. And someone who's in relationship with God by the grace of God through faith in Christ is in new relationships, not with just God, but with the church. And we're committed to the church. And there's a change of mission. We're committed to his mission. And we're willing to suffer for it. So, change of focus, change of allegiance, change of relationships to the church, change of mission. We're passionate about seeing more people come to know and love and serve Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So, two applications. The first, to those of you who aren't yet followers of Christ, to those of you who are far from God. So I want you to think about this as you just are wrestling intellectually maybe with Christianity and go, man, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know if this is true. The story of Paul's conversion is actually this huge apologetic for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul comes on the scene in A.D. 33. That's exactly around the time when Jesus is crucified and the word is out that he's been raised from the dead. If there was anybody who was on a mission to expose it, anybody who had the motivation to expose it, it was Paul, who's a learned guy. He's been educated by Gamaliel. This, he's got... He's, he's an intellectual, and to him it was intellectual suicide to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And he had all the motivation and all everything in front of him to chase it down and go, look, the reason Jesus is a bogus is because we found his body. The whole thing's a hoax. And so you got doubts about Christianity. So did Saul. So did Saul. And if God could change the heart and mind of someone who was majorly an agnostic and when it came to Christ, an atheist, he's not God. He did it. And so one of the things you say is, you know, doubt is something that we can even have as believers. 
but it's a good thing to wrestle with our doubts, and it's a good thing sometimes to question our doubts, because we get convinced that our doubts are the truth. Paul, he was convinced. His doubts, his questions, his conclusions, this, is, this, is, this has got to be it. So you got doubts about Christianity. Consider what happened with Paul. The other issue for people far from God and people who are following Christ is this whole matter of guilt. And so we believe this lie. It's a little voice, but it's a big lie. It says, God could never love me because of what I've done. How could he love me? How could he forgive me? Maybe you've done something as heinous as Paul. How could God forgive me? Here's what Paul says. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. Paul say, I'm at the front of the line. If you think you're bad, you're still behind me. And if Paul, the worst of sinners, says he's experienced the grace of God, then who are we? Who are we? I don't know if you know this, but when Jesus hung on the cross, one of the last things he said is, it is finished. And he wasn't saying, I'm about to die, it's almost over. No, it's act- it was actually an accounting term, to die. It means paid in full. What, is he, what, what do he pay for? For all the things that we've done and left undone against God and against our neighbor that deserves separation from a holy God, that Jesus paid for it all. There isn't anything you've done. There isn't anything you could do where God would say, oof, man, I hadn't thought about that one. Better put an asterisk on that. Can't forgive that. Can't forgive you. No, it is finished. It is finished. And so as God's grace is moving towards you, the Bible says the kindness of God leads to change. The Bible says Jesus is the kindness of God. Receive the grace, this gift, God's mercy and forgiveness, and follow him. Have your life changed? Have you done that? For those of us who are Christ followers, wow, this is really, really, really important. So a lot of thinking that we do is, I decided to follow Christ. So it's all about our decision. Well, there, there is a sense where we have to engage our will, but we start talking about the decision. We talk about the circumstance of what happened back then. Well, Acts 9 and the rest of Scripture is saying, yeah, th- that could be a true story about what happened then, but the marks of true faith is what's happening today. Not just what happened then. And so we ask ourselves, am I in a relationship with God? Do I actually talk to God? Prayer. When's the last time I prayed? Do I let God talk to me? The primary instrument that God speaks to us is through his living word. Am I in the word? Do I pray? Am I about a relationship and pursuing that? Or I'm about a bunch of religious activity so that I think I'm good and others around me think I'm good. Check number one. Where am I at? Is it a relationship or am I still doing religious things, hoping that I gain God's approval? There's a second question. Have I and am I submitting my life and everything in my life to Christ? Is there some area where I know I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not? 
Third, am I connected to a church? Committed or just kind of a spectator hanging on the edges? Fourth, am I committed to Christ's mission and like Paul, willing to suffer for it? Oh, that we'd be a church full of Ananiases and Barnabases who would take risks and welcome all kinds of the least likelies that we could ever imagine who could be transformed by the grace of God and greet him as brother and as sister. Oh, that we'd have new eyes so that as we think about the person in our life right now that you would go, least likely to be a follower of Jesus. You got that person in your family, at work, in the neighborhood? Least likely, no way this person. Oh, that we'd be filled with confidence in the grace of God that pursues people gently, kindly. And that we would pray for them with confidence of God's great love for them. That we would move towards them with the kindness and grace of Christ. Let's pray. So, Father God, until you come or call us home, May we see you for who you are, and like Paul, call you Lord, our Lord. For those who haven't yet placed their faith, Lord, grant them faith. May your kindness, even your mercy and grace in Christ, change their lives. For someone listening right now, as you consider again the claims of Christ, You want to surrender your life to him. You can give expression to that just through a quiet prayer. And so I'm going to pray a prayer, and if that's the intent of your heart, I encourage you to just silently pray along this prayer. Dear God, forgive me for thinking I'm good enough to earn a relationship with you. And forgive me for thinking that you could never forgive me. You know who I am and what I've done. Please forgive me. God, I believe your son, Jesus, is your son, my Savior. I'm placing all my trust and surrendering my life to his leading. Give me your spirit and help me to be your devoted follower part of your mission, changing the world with your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.